0: This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio.
1: Last week, President Trump pardoned his former National Security Advisor, Michael Flynn, who had pleaded guilty to lying to the FBI about his communications with Russia. Now speculation is swirling about who else the president will pardon before he leaves office and whether Trump will even pardon himself. In 2018, Trump tweeted that he has the absolute right to pardon himself, But many constitutional scholars say that's not correct. It's something that's never been tested in the courts because no president has ever tried to pardon himself. Richard Nixon left office and waited for his former vice president, Gerald Ford, to pardon him. My guest is Frank Bowman, a professor at the University of Missouri School of Law. As far as pardoning other people... Is there any limitation on a president's power to pardon someone? Let's say they're seen as a co-conspirator and they haven't been charged yet. Is there any limitation?
2: I think the answer is no. There's no limitation. Now, there are some people who disagree with me on that point, and I respect their views. I think that at least as a matter of original interpretation of the pardon clause, the framers thought about that quite expressly. Their debate focused on the fact that, as written, the pardon clause extends to any crime, including treason. And a number of the framers, both at the Philadelphia Convention and in the ratifying conventions in the states, objected to the breadth of that because they said, wait a minute, if a president can pardon even treason, imagine if the president himself has been engaging in treasonous activities and his co-conspirators, although they didn't use exactly that word, were caught or were suspected he could pardon them for treason and to prevent the discovery of his own guilt. And the framers' discussion pretty much assumes that that's undesirable, of course, but is included within the pardon power.
1: Has the pardon power ever been tested in
2: court? Well, you know, the, the... there were people who tried to challenge the Joe Arpaio pardon. You remember back at the beginning of the Trump's presidency, I think it was in 2017, Joe Arpaio, the, the former sheriff of Maricopa County in Arizona, uh, had been charged with, convicted of, uh, contempt of court arising out of a, a civil rights lawsuit to which he was a party. He'd been convicted of criminal contempt. Before he could be sentenced, Trump pardoned him. And... There was a, an effort to dispute that pardon on a couple of different grounds that were specific to the law of criminal contempt, but they never really got anywhere and, and the, the pardon stood. You know, there have been efforts to limit certain aspects of pardons, but there has certainly never been a court case that successfully overturned a presidential pardon, no
1: so just give us the broad framework of where the pardon power comes from and why the framers
2: gave the president pardon power well the pardon power comes from a very specific provision in the in the constitution which grants the president to pardon all offenses read federal criminal offenses except impeachments so essentially a, a president could not by use of the pardon undo a congressional impeachment and conviction of any federal official or, indeed, of himself. That's clear. So the, the framers wrote that provision specifically into the Constitution, specifically into the Article II powers of the President of the United States. Where it comes from is, you know, that back into deep time, I suppose, is the British practice whereby the Crown was entitled to pardon people. That British idea sort of emerged from the notion that, at least in early British legal theory, uh, the law was largely, if not exclusively, kind of an emanation of the will of the king. And therefore, it made perfect sense that legal guilt was really violation of the law, which was an emanation of the will of the king, that the king could, could reverse that, could undo it, could reach down and, uh, and reverse what the king thought to be unfair or unjust, excessive applications of the law. Now, that became more refined over time, but uh, there were also pardons, pardon power written into the constitutions of the early American states from 1776 to 1788 when the Constitution was ratified. And there had been a long tradition of the ability of generally speaking, the executive branch, but sometimes legislatures and sometimes the two working together to reach in to undo excessive, unfair, unjust applications of the criminal law. Nothing strange or unusual about that. There was a debate in the Philadelphia Convention about whether or not the pardon power... Or American constitutional purposes ought to rest exclusively in the president, or whether it ought to be shared with component of the legislature, particularly the Senate, either generally or in relationship to pardons for treason. And they kicked it back and forth, and they decided at the end of the day that it made better sense to leave this power in the hands of the single executive, partly because they thought that there would be occasions when it ought to be used expeditiously. And it ought not to be tied up into, you know, legislative delay. And they also thought of the pardon power as, in a sense, a kind of interbranch check by the executive on excesses of the legislature, excesses of the judiciary. You can see an example of that kind of use of the pardon power in President Obama's program to uh, reduce the sentences of of nonviolent drug offenders, where he pardoned some, you know, somewhere between 1,000 and 2,000 first time drug offenders towards the end of, of his, his term. And that was the use of the executive pardon powers, a kind of systematic response or systemic response to the fact that Congress had passed uh, these long mandatory minimum sentences that applied even to. Uh, people who are nonviolent drug offenders. And, so that's a classic example of, of, that, of that use of the pardon.
1: Explain why constitutional scholars disagree about whether a president can pardon himself.
2: Series of reasons. First, it's never, ever been done. No executive branch official, whether a king, president or governor, has ever attempted to pardon himself. And you can see why that would not be so. The pardon power, whether British or American, is designed for the chief executive to make a judgment about the behavior of others and to conclude either that they were unjustly convicted or or excessively punished, perhaps rehabilitated themselves after a period of time. And just by its nature, that idea doesn't involve making a judgment about yourself. We've always thought that Making that kind of judgment uh, about oneself is plainly going to be something that uh, is subject to abuse, uh, and so it's never been done. That's the the first thing. It's really contrary to the the whole theory. Second thing, without getting into a lot of detail, there are a number of debates that happened during the the ratification of the Constitution that made pretty clear that although the framers didn't specifically talk about the self-pardon, it's pretty clear that they also didn't imagine that such a thing would be possible. They just didn't conceive it as being something that to be done. They conceived the pardon as necessarily involving two parties. And they also wrote both the pardon clause and the impeachment clauses in a way that made it clear that they assumed that there were really three ways In the Constitution to check a criminally misbehaving president. The first of these was elections, of course, and they originally were kicking around the idea that perhaps elections would be enough to restrain a really seriously misbehaving executive. They ultimately decided that wouldn't be enough. So they then instituted the idea of impeachment, which itself is an old British idea. But they went a little further than that. And when they wrote the impeachment clauses, they wrote a limitation on the consequences of impeachment. Under the American Constitution, if you're impeached and convicted by the Senate, the only consequences that happen directly as a result of that are you lose your office. And if the Senate takes a second vote, you can also be barred from future office holding. But in addition, they were very careful to say that although you can't be criminally punished directly, in other words, you can't be sent to prison, you can't be fined, you can't be executed directly as a result of being impeached by the House and convicted by the Senate, each person remains subject to criminal punishment by the normal action of the courts. That's written right right in the impeachment clause. So what I think you see here is that the framers imagined that there were these three ways of dealing with a criminal president, elections, impeachment, and the possibility of criminal prosecution. Now, if a president can simply pardon himself for anything, then the possibility of criminal prosecution for criminal misbehavior while in office essentially goes poof because it could be taken completely off the board it would eliminate one of the three constitutional checks on presidential misbehavior
1: let's just say president trump decides he's going to pardon himself how would that even be tested in court would it take a federal prosecution charging him with a crime to test whether he had the power to pardon himself
2: that would be the principal way that it would happen. Presumably the members of the Biden Justice Department would do a criminal investigation. They would conclude, after looking at all the evidence, that indeed the behavior merited an indictment. The indictment is returned by the grand jury, and the, the president would move to quash the indictment based on his own pardon, and the Department of Justice would resist that motion, claiming that the president has no such power. Now, I think, frankly, that Trump is likely to try this, even though, you know, it's constitutionally doubtful. Because he might win, you know, maybe the Supreme Court would disagree with me and other people who don't think self-pardons are possible. But he could also use the self-pardon to slow things down tremendously. Not only could he invoke this, his own pardon of himself if the department indicted him, but I suspect what he and his lawyers would try to do is that as soon as it became evident that they were engaging in a criminal investigation of him, that he'd try to stop at least important components of the investigation, like subpoenas for witnesses, subpoenas for documents by moving to quash them on the ground that they were being issued in order to put together a prosecution, which wouldn't be possible because he pardoned himself. Now, I don't necessarily think that would be ultimately successful, but it could slow things down because to to resist that claim, the government would have to resist the motion to quash. That would have to be decided by the trial court, then the Intermediate Court of Appeals, then the Supreme Court, and all that takes time. So I think he's likely to try to do this because it certainly seems that he's worried about at least criminal investigations of himself and others. And at a minimum, a self pardon is going to provide another avenue for delay. And as we know anything about Donald Trump and his approach to litigation over his long business and political career, it's that he uses delay as a major tactic uh, to try to resist the legal efforts of his opponents.
1: So if the Biden Justice Department decides not to prosecute Trump, then his self-pardon will remain untested.
2: That's true, although again, I suspect Trump, if he pardoned himself, would be tempted at least to try to use the pardon to slow down not only any criminal investigation of him, but also potential civil or administrative investigations. I don't think that attempt would be successful, but I think he might try it, and therefore there might be other venues for challenging it. But here's the thing. One of the perverse effects of Trump pardoning himself might be that a Biden Justice Department would feel obliged to pursue the matter. It's awfully tough, I think, for an honest Justice Department to let that precedent stand because it then, if unchallenged, it starts to gather force as something that presidents can do, and if it becomes even sort of generally accepted that that's a possibility, consider where we are. We already know because it was a big issue during the Mueller investigation that the Office of Legal Counsel within the Justice Department has long held the opinion that sitting presidents cannot be indicted while in office. Now. I think that's constitutionally wrong, but as a practical matter, it's not something to be challenged because OLC memos was the Justice Department and if the Justice Department won't prosecute a sitting president, he can't be prosecuted. So that means that practically speaking, at the present moment, a sitting president is not subject to federal criminal prosecution while he's there. If he can also self-pardon that means he's never subject to criminal prosecution. And given the potential breadth of a pardon, which can extend to any federal crime whatsoever, and indeed all federal, and which at least potentially could be granted to oneself as president for periods extending before your president. What you're talking about is creating a de facto regime in which once somebody becomes president of the United States, combined operation of the OLC, Madeline Self-Pardon, makes that person permanently immune from criminal consequences at least in the federal courts, for anything he's done during his entire life. And a person who has that kind of immunity effectively assumes one of the attributes of monarchy. One of the things that is true, or was true, actually remains true, about British kings and queens is they are not subject to the operation of the ordinary courts, criminal or civil, uh, of Great Britain. Um, They are effectively immune from the law. One thing we know if anything, about the framers of the Constitution, is that they did not intend to create in a president somebody who was the de facto equivalent of king. If, if, if the president can, can essentially pardon himself out of all criminal liability for everything in his entire life, we've created at least a kind of monarch.
1: Just before um, I let you go, would you just explain why the president cannot, there's no chance that the president can pardon himself from state crimes like those that the Manhattan district attorney is investigating.
2: The pardon power in the constitution is very broad indeed, but it has some implicit limitations. One of them is that it applies only to federal offenses. So it doesn't relate to state crimes at all. Another uh, implicit limitation is that it can only cover crimes that have already occurred at the time of the issuance of the pardon. So that means um, that Trump, even if, in theory, self-pardons are available, um, could not pardon himself for offenses that are are committed after he leaves office. And indeed, he probably can't pardon himself um, for any ongoing offense that started before he pardons himself or indeed anyone else and continues after that pardon. So there are limitations, um, but at least as to federal criminal offenses, before the issuance of the pardon, uh, the pardon power is very broad.
1: Thanks, Frank. That's Professor Frank Bowman of the University of Missouri Law School. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. The number of Americans hospitalized with COVID-19 climbed to a record Sunday, a sign that the virus is still raging. But good news on the vaccine front today. Moderna announced plans to request clearance for its coronavirus vaccine in the U.S. and Europe after a new analysis showed the vaccine was highly effective in preventing COVID-19 with no serious safety problems. At this pivotal time, states are not only facing decisions on how to manage the pandemic, but also on how to distribute a vaccine. Joining me to discuss this is Mark Houston, who has a healthcare regulatory and lobbying practice at Farrell Fritz. Normally, a governor is empowered to make decisions about lockdowns, but we've seen that the Supreme Court recently has blocked Governor Andrew Cuomo from reimposing strict capacity limits on New York City synagogues and Catholic churches. So tell us about how broad the governor's authority is and how it can be restricted.
0: In general, governors have very broad authority in uh, regard to disaster emergencies. Every state has language that says, in the event of uh, a disaster emergency of any kind, including a public health emergency, generally the executive uh, is granted extraordinary powers to do all kinds of things that the executive normally cannot do. Uh, However, uh, even though those statutes that grant uh, that authority broad, uh, they are still subject to limitations imposed by the state constitution and by the federal constitution. And that's what was that issue uh, in the case in in regard to New York State, where you had a situation where the governor's police power for public health purposes was pitted squarely against uh, questions of religious rights. Uh, And, uh, you know, that always puts the court in a difficult position to try to figure out, um, you know, which uh which set of rights wins in a particular uh, disagreement uh and in this case what they decided was uh that uh for a variety of reasons uh the uh the, the order uh, as related to churches uh and synagogues in New York state uh needed to be uh, enjoined and could could not in fact be enforced
1: so now mayor de blasio and governor Cuomo have clashed several times during the coronavirus pandemic, particularly about whether or not schools should be operational. Who has the authority in that battle?
0: Ultimately, uh, the uh, decision regarding schools, any decision regarding schools in New York State is uh, the responsibility of the governors. Um, However, in regard to New York City schools, uh, the mayor does have uh, expansive authority. Um, And in this case. The issue turned on a rule that was set earlier that once the infection rate topped 3%, schools would once again uh, eliminate uh, in-person instruction. Uh, and, you know, the, ultimately the disagreement turned on whether that was a good rule or not. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the governor made the argument that based on the most recent uh, scientific information we had, maybe you didn't need to... To abide by by such a bright line rule, and it sounds like the mayor is ultimately agreeing. I mean, this is uh, illustrates, I think, part of the the, the, the problem uh, in a pandemic situation, right? Um, you know, we I mentioned earlier the uh, the broad authority of governors uh, in regard to disaster emergencies. I think part of the problem is those statutes that grant that power are premised on sort of typical disasters, things like hurricanes, earthquakes, tornadoes, and not something that occurs over such a sustained period of time. And, you know, as the pandemic has been evolving, our understanding of it has evolved. So we, we get new scientific information over time. Uh, and that, uh, I think, properly um, has driven some, some changes uh, in, in, in the approach to, to particular issues. And that question of in-person schooling is absolutely one of them.
1: So let's say that the mayor said that schools will remain closed. Does anyone have an ability to appeal that decision? Is it something that you would take to court?
0: Sure, you certainly could. Um, the um, you know there uh, have uh, courts have absolutely found a, a right to education, um, and you know there has been certainly in New York a considerable amount of litigation. Uh, around that. Um, and so you you have essentially another situation similar uh, to the situation regarding churches and synagogues where uh, you know you have this this right to education pitted against the, the police power of the state. So you, you you could absolutely make the argument. I mean that's one of the great things about our system is you, you can always make the argument uh, what the courts will say or, or a different matter I think.
1: As far as the masks, Mask-wearing. Are there any states or cities who've really gotten serious about finding people who are not wearing masks?
0: You know, you, you always hear sort of anecdotes about how, how particular places are responding. Mask-wearing is, is one of those things that falls on this continuum where, you know, there's there's plenty of laws that everyone sort of recognizes and accepts about, you know, governing people's clothing. You know, we have indecent exposure laws, for instance. But on the other hand, there is a natural and understandable concern about government mandating what you can wear and what you can't wear in other situations. The key is always uh, one of intent. And, you know, a mask wearing statute accompanied by a fine, I think under the current circumstances would probably survive judicial
1: review. How will the federal government determine what states get the vaccine how much of the vaccine they get and which vaccine they get? Who makes that determination? Is it the federal government?
0: So so that is one of those questions that um, is in some ways up in the air. Uh, The federal government has issued uh, a, a vaccine distribution plan, but it is expressed in very general terms and I think mostly talks about how they're going to go about making those decisions as opposed to what those decisions will be. Um, States, uh, you know, have already started to engage on that question themselves. Uh, And for instance, here in New York, um, you know, there is a, I think a much more detailed plan uh, as to what, uh, how those decisions are going to be made. Um, There's not, you know, a hard and fast existing rule, uh, driving that decision now, like so many things during the pandemic, um, you know, uh, the, the decision makers are in a position where they can, uh, they have a lot of leeway in, in how they make those decisions. And uh, I think you, you see the decision really turning on, on two different things, right? Uh, there is the decision about, uh, you know, what is uh, an essential worker? Um, there's a, a general recognition that essential workers should probably have, uh, first priority or at least a high priority. Um, and that generally involves, uh, workers who are involved in addressing the disease and also, um, sort of the, the, the second poll, I think, uh, that, uh, decision makers are, 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 aiming towards is, uh, workers essential to keeping the economy going. So that's sort of one set. And then the other set is, uh, you know, populations that are disproportionately impacted by the disease. And there's a lot of overlap there, right? Um, essential workers, uh, you know, for instance, workers in hospitals who are exposed to the disease every day, uh, you know, are probably more likely to contract it. But there's, there's other populations where, you know, they wouldn't necessarily qualify as essential workers and yet still are disproportionately impacted. And, and there is a sense that you, you then need to, to uh, put them uh, high on the priority list for receiving the vaccination.
1: Tomorrow, a panel of advisors at the CDC is going to meet to determine how to allocate the initial supplies of the vaccine. Is it up to the CDC or is it up to the president or someone in the cabinet?
0: Everyone recognizes that the CDC has primary responsibility for, uh, I think, evaluating the science and making recommendations. What happens after that uh, is an interesting question, right? Because certainly some amount of decision-making could happen uh, on the federal level. Traditionally, uh, public health-related decision-making has occurred, though, on the state level. Um, So I think this becomes a very interesting question, right, where if, if you face a situation where The federal government says one thing and the state says something very different. Um, uh, And I I think, you know, if push came to shove uh, from a legal point of view, I would guess the state would win. Uh, But, uh, you know, that a a lot of that will depend on um, where the controversy arises.
1: So, So will there be groups lobbying about who gets the vaccine first or which vaccine they get, because the vaccines seem to have different efficacies so far.
0: Certainly. I mean, that, that's, that's the one thing you can count on, uh, particularly in an environment like this, when government uh, takes and necessarily has such a significant decision-making role um you know it's not like uh it was before the pandemic when you know the private sector could largely do what it wanted i think there's a general recognition that uh government is making a lot of uh the most important decisions here uh if not the most important decisions and um you need to engage with government uh in order to uh you know at least make sure your perspective is is heard uh and by the way uh, this is yet another First Amendment right—the right to petition your government for uh, re- redress of grievances—and uh, and that's that's something that you know is, is continues uh, even in a in a uh, COVID environment.
1: So we've seen the problems with people not wanting to get the vaccine for measles, and I would anticipate that there are going to be a lot of people who don't want to get the vaccine for COVID. What can the state do? Can the state do anything to compel people to get the vaccine?
0: It's a great question. Uh, the, there is generally a, a, I think, strong hesitation uh, to compel medical treatment, which is why historically, for instance, when it comes to things like vaccination, um, you won't see a, a flat-out uh, uh, compulsion. There, even sort of the, the seminal case before the Supreme Court from 1905 involved a Massachusetts law where um, there was a compulsive smallpox vaccination, but you could you could buy your way out of it. You could pay a fine and and not get the vaccination. Um, and and I think that that makes sense, right? Because I, there is you know that that sort of violation of bodily integrity, I think, is something that. Uh, government across the board, you know, courts, executive and legislature all recognize is something that is significant and, you know, should only be done in the most extreme cases. But that said, um, you know, there it is recognized that the state has uh, an interest in, in protecting the citizenry against disease. And so in general, courts have been Uh, very uh, liberal in uh, allowing government to uh, make decisions that effectively compel it, for instance, um, requiring vaccination in order to attend school. Uh, So I I think you would probably see something like that. Um, You you would definitely see people who are not going to take it. Uh, And then the question becomes, okay, what, what are government's options then? Can they... You know, uh, issue a fine. Can they they impose a fine for not doing that? Um, and I guess it, it will probably ultimately depend on the numbers, right? If uh, if they feel like enough people are getting the vaccination, irrespective of the people that refuse to do so, you might not see a lot done. Um, if they see widespread rejection of the vaccines, then government's going to have to take a harder look at it and maybe uh, look towards uh, you know more serious measures.
1: Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Mark. That's Mark Houston of Farrell Fritz. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And please tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio.